Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts, or you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, or streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcaster, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Jeremy, we have a special show today, right? Yeah, over the years, uh, we've gotten a pretty consistent request in our emails. People want to hear about Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes. Somebody wrote into the podcast who was a former Jehovah's Witness, Mm -hmm. and his brother was in the church, and he was asking for advice as to how does he break his brother free of this heavy, heavy indoctrination. Mm -hmm. But nobody here on the podcast has any experience with Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, it's very much outside um, our realm of uh, at least direct knowledge, being from more mainstream Christian backgrounds ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are a whole different beast. About a year ago, I met a former Jehovah's Witness. He was in the process of leaving the church, Mm -hmm. and he had been a former elder of the Jehovah's Witness church in his area. So a ranking official. Yes, trained at their global headquarters. And so, of course, I tried to invite him on the show right away. So you have to share this story. Right. For the sake of anonymity, we will call him Robert. Mm -hmm. Every time we were about to do this interview, Robert decided he wasn't quite ready yet. Right. Not that he was struggling with his faith or something. No, not at all. But because of external issues such as the the pressures the Jehovah's Witnesses put on family members and that sort of thing. He has very realistic fears that if he publicly criticizes the church, the church will try to alienate him from his family. Right. Um, It's what they do. They're they're shunning. Well, and as we'll see, as an elder Mm -hmm. of the church, he has personal experience in the methods of church discipline. Yeah, this is not just your average Jehovah's Witness. This is someone who is actually in the system, who is actually working for the church. So it's a it's a really interesting provides an insider's perspective as to uh, not just the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses, but also their their organizational structure right. and their how they discipline their membership. So. Uh, without wasting any more time, let's jump into that interview. Here it is, uh, our interview with Robert. I'm guessing a lot of the people listening to the show are not very familiar with the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses. A lot of us know that 
Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, can't take blood transfusions, or that many Jehovah's Witnesses cannot say the Pledge of Allegiance or salute a flag or support a political party. But some of the more interesting beliefs that might distinguish Jehovah's Witnesses from other Christians, a lot of us don't know anything about. What is, what is distinctive about Jehovah's Witness belief and doctrines? Well, I think probably the most unique thing about um, Jehovah's Witness belief has to do with um, the kind of eternal reward element where, you know, it's not a guarantee that all Jehovah's Witnesses would go to heaven. You know, if, if mm-hmm. they were faithful and God chose them, they wouldn't necessarily go to heaven. In fact, most of it's taught that most wouldn't. So for the most part, it's taught that faithful Jehovah's Witnesses would, if they died, then they'd be resurrected on earth. And then they'd live forever on a restored earth, mm-hmm. basically, after Armageddon. Um, those that survived what was supposed to be this upcoming great tribulation and Armageddon itself would just continue on, you know, as human beings on the earth living for the next millennia, basically. Okay. So there's so there's uh, there's some people going to heaven in an afterlife and other people just enjoying a more blissful existence here on earth. What if you are not a believer? Is there is there a hell? No, there's no hell. Um, actually, it's just non-existence, basically. Mm-hmm. So very similar to the secular worldview that... <laughs> it doesn't sound too bad. No, it's, it's not <laughs> terrible at all. You just die and you're gone, and that's it. Um, there is a limited number that are supposed to go to heaven to rule with, with God and with Jesus, um, and that number specifically is 144,000. Okay. which comes out of Revelation, they say, you know, 140,000, that, that number is not symbolic, even if, you know, most of the rest of it surrounding that number is, but that one is correct. Non-believers, basically, um, there's kind of two classes. One class, of course, is the ones who never hear about it, and if they never hear about it, then they still have a chance. So the timeline is, you know, Jesus came to earth, you know, died in 33 CE, then there was kind of a dark period of time, basically, up until um, Russell, who came around in the late 1800s, and then he was kind of God's chosen, not prophet, they, you know, and they, they say, you know, we're not prophets, but we kind of prophesy, and that's kind of a gray area where they kind of wobble back and forth. This is Charles Taze Russell. Charles Taze Russell, right. So he was kind of the... Uh, he was the catalyst of this movement, and and really he wasn't because he's kind of sprung from the Millerites, but he was the first one who you'd refer to as, you know, the beginning of Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. So when he came back, that was the beginning of people finding out about, you know, what was what they were supposed to be doing again, and a restoration to the first century church, bringing those ideas back. So... He came to the scene. He started pointing to 1914. Of course, people today think that he said 1914 was going to be the return of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He actually didn't. He talked about 1914 as being Armageddon itself. Mm-hmm. But most wow. currently practicing witnesses don't realize that. Mm-hmm. A few do, but uh, most don't. So then he passed away in 1916, I think, somewhere around there. Um, it was taken over by some other people. And then shortly after the fact, sometime in the 20s, they changed the date to say, well, 1914 was Christ's invisible return. So then, hmm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> which just sounds exactly like the May 21st thing because right, it, right. it is the same thing. <laughs> so after that point, they changed that. Um, and then the timeline extended to say, you know, this generation now is, is going to be the one that sees Armageddon come. Hmm. 
So when Armageddon gets here, it's going to destroy all the wicked, keep all all the righteous, basically all Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and then those that don't know, they're not necessarily going to be destroyed. You know, they they may or may not. The one, people that have died that didn't have an awareness of, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses in general um, would have the potential to be resurrected too. Hmm. So Armageddon happens. And then basically for a thousand years from that point, people get resurrected, good or bad, you know, people all over the earth. They have that thousand years to basically attain perfection mm-hmm. and learn what witnesses refer to as the truth. This is the millennial kingdom that actually a yep. lot of Christians outside of Jehovah's Witnesses yep. believe in. Yep. Um, and so then after that, you know, Satan's let loose again, and then he tricks everybody and gets a ton of people back with him. And then after that point, then he's abyssed and he's he's destroyed. And all the wicked people are destroyed forever, and then that's the indefinite, everlasting. Okay. So so in a, in a sense, then, this uh, this millennium of of peace on earth followed by Satan's release to tempt mm-hmm. people, this is kind of like... The final purging. You know, we're separating the people who really belong in God's kingdom from those who don't. Right. And it gets past the question of, well, what about people that never got this message? Yeah. You Mm -hmm. know, Armageddon itself is, uh, you know, the artist renditions of Armageddon and even in the children's literature that comes out is pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty graphic, you know. And so Mm -hmm. actually placing some of this stuff going door to door, I mean, was sometimes a very uncomfortable experience because... You're handing out these, this information, and, and not often, but occasionally, you know, you'd end up with one that has this picture of buildings falling down and people dying and people screaming out and hiding under rocks and everything else. Mm-hmm. And you're bringing this to a door of someone who you know obviously doesn't agree with you in the first place. And, hey, <laughs> have a read of this. You're <laughs> going to love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Jehovah's Witnesses also have some unorthodox beliefs about the nature of Jesus, correct? That's correct. It's a it's a non-Trinitarian view. So um, the teaching is that, you know, Jesus was basically Jehovah's first creation. Mm-hmm. So he started off with made Jesus first, and then through Jesus made everything else. But there's no equality mm-hmm. there between Jesus and God. Separate entity, you know, mm-hmm. no, no, no unity apart from purpose. So... Then, you know, Jesus comes to earth to redeem mankind, um, is not crucified, but died on a stake through some clever quoting, actually. Um, and then, I got to pause right there. He wasn't crucified. He died on a stake. But I'm wondering, wh- why is that important? That's I've always picked that up as a quirky belief uh, compared to uh, the rest of Christians. But but why is why is that important? You know, I don't know. Um <laughs> In retrospect, I look back and I think that it was just another reason to be a little bit different than mainstream okay. Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and actually looking into that was one of one of the things that I started to look into that that really struck me and, and really frustrated me with the with the whole thing was, you know, okay, we have this teaching about the about the stake, and I understand that you know at the time I had understood that it was, you know, that the actual literature talked about, you know, the Greek storos and how that refers to, you know, a tree and things Mm -hmm. like that until I actually started checking the quotes, you know. And and so I started looking and and reading through, like, one of the books that we have is the Reasoning from the Scriptures book, which is kind of like a very miniature encyclopedia. So I go through and 
reading up on this, and it and it literally quotes you know a source, which was you know a, a biblical encyclopedia. So I'm curious as to what this actually says. So I go and I look it up, and it and it does. I mean, the quote was correct, but there's an ellipsis, you know, a little dot dot dot, and the part that they took out basically said, you know, the quote was something to the effect of, you know, the Greek word "storos" generally meant upright stick or pole or tree, da 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 da. The part they took out though was, however, you know, by the turn of the century and like two centuries before then, so like from from 200 BCE. Onward, this word "storos" generally meant an upright pole with a crosspiece, and so they took that part out, hmm. and then continued the rest of the sentence. And I thought, well, that's no matter how you cut it, <laughs> that's such a dishonest way right. to present something, you know. And and I was really frustrated when I found that, and I just found it kind of on accident. Yeah. But you know, you can look up, you can literally type in a quote into Google, and of course, get the full sentence, the full paragraph. Yeah. Right. I thought, well, why why not just be Upright about this. Why is why is this important? It, it just yeah. doesn't make sense. I had almost the exact same experience. One of my first moments seeing through apologetics was reading a book on evolution, where they were uh, they were quoting they were quoting about this this uh, this dig where they found fossils in a lower strata than they should have. And uh, mm. and I actually looked mm-hmm. up the source material and saw that yeah. dot, 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 the very next thing was. <laughs> but we yep. could also see this is where the strata actually, uh, uh, because of geological forces, was actually pushed down below another mm-hmm. strata. I was like, oh! <laughs> and when it dawns on you, wow, these people are actually going through and data mining these texts. Right, right. It can be a bit of a shocker at first. Yeah, and that... And that actually was one of the things that made me start trying to dig into that more. Was mm-hmm. I thought, well, if this one, if if they did this with this one, then what else could they have done it with? Mm-hmm. You know, and right. obviously and it's such a it's such a a non you know it's not a really that big of a right. point. Right. So you know, regarding the the more basic tenets of the thing, you know, they, right, yeah. right, it doesn't affect doctrine at all. Exactly. It's just. Hey, we say this. So it makes you wonder the extent that they would go right. to. Right. But some other things other than just intellectual points were kind of shaking you from your conviction that the uh, – what the Watchtower – is it called the Watchtower Society? What? There's a number of different entities actually. There's the um, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of Pennsylvania, um, the Christian Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, there's a handful more just here in the U.S. So they all came about from kind of different, you know, original roots from the same people, and each one kind of covers different elements. So I guess you can use any of the above. Do they do battle? <laughs> no, they're all they the same. <laughs> I'm sure they probably do. Like behind closed doors, they have their own little <laughs> secret meetings. Um, but they they actually made a deviation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had a deviation, uh, I think, around 2000 years or around uh, the year 2000, um, where they split off the Christian Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, which is like the leaders, basically. Mm-hmm. I think went in that entity, and then all of the legalities split off separately. So, you know, I don't, I don't know the reasoning, the reasoning really behind that, but it kind of gave the the governing body, who basically dictates doctrine, kind of. I think it kind of gave them kind of a little more leeway. To do what they wanted to do and not necessarily be directly tied into the legal entity. Well, that's a good uh, transition into um, the 
the organizational structure of the Jehovah's Witness Church is very unique. Mm -hmm. And at the top is this group called the Governing Body. And uh, who are they exactly? Um, the Governing Body is basically a group of men. I think there's 12 or 13 at this point. I, they change every once in a while. They're, they're a bit older, a bit up in years for the most part. Um, they're appointed from you know, voting from within the group that exists. Mm -hmm. So if they want to take on a new person, you know, the group, the existing group gets together, votes in another person. Which which group? The governing body themselves. Oh, okay. So the governing body says, well, we want, you know, we should take on another person. Now, I'm not sure on the details of that mm -hmm. um, because, you know, there are voting members that are members of the corporation. Um, and I think there's a thousand of them or something like that or 500 or something like that. It's not a huge number. Um, and they do get some say in the way that the organization is run. They're basically shareholders. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not sure if they have some part of that process, that appointment process. But my understanding is the governing body is appointed by the governing body. They choose someone that they see eye to eye with. And then uh, their their function then is they determine doctrine for the rest of the for the, for the rest of the denomination? They definitely determine doctrine and they determine a lot of other things too. And the way they're presented basically to the, to the, to the witnesses is, you know, either as the governing body, they refer to themselves as the faithful and discreet slave, sort of. I heard, kept on finding that term, the faith, faithful and discreet slave class. Right, yeah. And... Mm. <laughs> So that means is that identical with the governing body, or is technically that... it's not. Um, technically, the faithful and discreet slaves class consists of everyone who's a member of that group of one hundred and forty-four thousand. Okay, who are going to go to heaven? The, so the, so the special, then? the special anointed no. Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> right, right. So the, the anointed, so the anointed witnesses, you know, across the world are the faithful and discreet slave class. However. The governing body is the representatives, are the representatives of that faithful and discreet slave class. Except, okay. Except so the faithful they speak on their behalf. Right. Except they're not voted in by them at all. No, no. They're so, self-appointed, super-anointed slave class. Basically, <laughs> yeah. So if you say, look, you know, I'm, I'm appointed and, you know, I, you know, I've been anointed and I'm 144,000, you don't actually get any additional say. You know, you just... You know, but then the governing body says, "Well, you know, we're we're the representatives of that that overall group. There just isn't any actual representation going on because there's no that I'm <laughs> say. <laughs> you know, and also that number is actually going up. So, so the 144,000 number is supposed to be going down because it's you know we're almost at the end, right? Except like at the last... some point you're going to cap off your 144,000. Right. And it kept 000. it kept going down for the last you know. Almost 100 years. Well, since 30, 1935, basically, it started to drastically reduce until it got down to, I think, like 7,000 or something like that. And then all of a sudden it started to go back up. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows why. <laughs> who, who determines, like, do you get a card in the mail that says you're one of the 44,000? Or is it everybody who's saved after a certain date? Or who I picture determines? that scene from, from Willy Wonka. Oh. I got a golden ticket <laughs> just running through the streets. <laughs> Um, no, you just say that you are. Oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, so I've known quite a few through the years. Um, and just at some point they say, oh yeah, no, I've, I've been, I've been chosen, you know, and, 
and uh, I don't recall the exact scripture, but it says, you know, something to the effect of, you know, the person's spirit interacts with God's spirit, and then they just know. So if you are, you're supposed to just know. Wow, that's got to be an interesting group if they get to self-select. <laughs> well, they get to self-select, but they Fun don't. Fun group of people to be around. <laughs> oh, it's, I've never known one that's not been pretty, um, I don't want to say crazy, but not been a very well-adjusted group of the people I've known. But it doesn't affect anything because it doesn't give you additional right. rights to do anything apart from, you know, to be. Bragging a, rights. Yeah, and to be on the governing <laughs> body, you know, you have to be anointed. But you can just say that you were. Mm-hmm. So, were you anointed? No, <laughs> no, never claimed to be. <laughs> just an ordinary, uh, ordinary, ordinary guy. JW. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about your time within the church. Uh, were you always a Jehovah's Witness? Were you born into it? Um, I was basically born into it. Um, most of my immediate family was in it as well. Um, you know, so all through school, through high school, I was pretty fairly active. Um, got in a little bit of trouble in high school, you know, nothing serious with the, with the organization itself. Um, pioneered for quite a few years. So mm-hmm. pioneering at the when I first started out was ninety hours a month. What, what, so what, pioneering, what does this mean? Pioneering means that you commit to spending ninety hours per month mm-hmm. going door to door, and then shortly thereafter it was reduced to seventy hours a month. So you know, but you get a, a slight people look at you a little bit differently. When you're pioneer, um, you have some things that open up to you that you can do that other people that aren't pioneering can't do. Um, so I did that for quite a few years. And then there's different levels of that too, but the but the full-time one was kind of the more – they had special pioneers too, and they were like 120 hours a month. I mean that was a, a serious commitment at the time. But that was kind of the level that you got a lot of advantages for doing that. Um, so I pioneered for quite a few years, and you then you knocked on quite a few doors. Huh? I locked on yeah, <laughs> a lot of doors. <laughs> how many? Yeah. Uh, how many angry atheists did you come across in that time? You know, I don't recall coming across very many atheists at all. Actually, um, not surprising, giving our area. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, there were there were you know one or two, but um, didn't really get into too many discussions there. Mm-hmm. Um, did get into some interesting discussions with non-believers. Outside of the going door to door, and those were, you know, we were told to just kind of keep moving on, you know, because it, we weren't going to make any progress, you know. So they'd make some points, and we'd not, we'd try to not think about them, and then just mm-hmm. kind of move on to the next person. Probably the best strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, for yeah, for that it was. Um, so I pioneered for a few years. Uh, then I sent in an application to New York to work at the headquarters, basically. A few months went by and that got accepted. So then I packed up everything I owned basically and shipped off to New York. Stayed out in New York for a couple years. Um, you know, and I, and I can't say I had a bad time. I had a good time out there. I met a bunch of people and I really got to know people from all over the U.S., which came into significant significant play later on um, because, you know, time went on. I ended up leaving after a while in good terms, you know, and a uh, clean record and all that. Um, moved on. But then, of course, you know, a lot of my friends that I knew out there moved on too at some point. So they came back either to where they were from in the first place or moved wherever they wanted to. But then at this point, I kind of had a network of people that I knew pretty well who lived yeah. all over the country. And then having gone and done that kind of puts you in a in a somewhat improved position locally mm-hmm. where people look at you and say, well, this guy was at Bethel. 
you know, so, you know, he's probably someone who really takes it seriously. So when they look at people you're, and say... You're dropping all this tech terminology. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, Bethel, Bethel, that's interesting. They name their headquarters. The global headquarters is named Bethel. Um, the headquarters in every branch in every country. Bethel from the Bible is one of the... Um, the house of God. Yeah. Well, it's, right. yeah. What, where one of the patriarchs was a Jacob mm-hmm. set up a, a shrine. Mm-hmm. But it also becomes a center of pagan worship. So I'm sure there's probably non-Jehovah's Witnesses that just go batshit crazy over knowing that your headquarters is called Bethel. I actually <laughs> never knew that. <laughs> really? But yeah, it's you know there's there's a number of things done at Bethel. I mean, it, it is the headquarters. The printing happens you know at different locations. There's there's one in Brooklyn, one in Walkill, one in Patterson, um, and then of course throughout the world, there's numerous you know other other uh, branches. What I think is interesting is this is not just like the headquarters of the Christian Reformed Church that we have here in, in Grand Rapids. Or This is – at Bethel, they're getting field reports, right? They're getting reports on the activities of Jehovah's Witnesses around the world, regular Oh, yeah. Reports are streaming yeah. in there. Monthly reports go out there. You know, that's handled by the service department. I wasn't I wasn't involved in that. I was in more of a service, you know, mm-hmm. um, position. But, uh, but yeah, every month, every single publisher turns in a card that says, I went to, you know, I went door to door for, not necessarily door to door, but I preached for this many hours. I placed this many magazines. I had this many return visits, you know, which is just a, going back so to see somebody. So all that's on file and it all gets sent to the headquarters. Yeah, it all gets entered into a database. And then additionally, which I found out later after I became an elder, was not just that information, but also anytime there's like judicial action, you know, someone's disciplined from the congregation, mm. that gets filed also. Mm. And so your publisher card with all of that data that's filed, you know, so there's there's a pretty serious database of a lot of information out there. And, and so what would be some of the things that would require disciplinary action? Um, there's actually a, a pretty solid list. I mean, you know, fornication, adultery, um, stealing, political involvement, blood trans. Well, blood transfusions actually they changed that now. So, um, you you still would get, you still would. Well, that's a different story. But so that used to be. But it, and it still you still would suffer the effects. Basically, mm-hmm. it just goes about it a different means for legal purposes. Um, smoking. Um, smoking. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Smoke a cigarette. You know that's that's judicial action. You know any any sort of drug use, of course. Um, yeah, you know anything that would fall under the usual things. You know, you know. So sins. your your lifestyle comes under intense scrutiny, and if you break something in this moral code, a report gets sent. It, eventually, um, if you if you if you break one of the rules, the process basically starts like this, where. You know, you have a body of elders, so you have a group of a group of men. Usually, it's somewhere between like five and ten. Um, it can be less, but uh, you have a group of elders in each congregation. Um, we would get, we'd hear rumors. We'd hear, you know, people would confess to us. We'd have people who would come to us and say, "Hey, you know," they'd tell on other people and say, "Look, this guy's doing this." So, as soon as we'd hear of something like that, that would kind of start a chain of events. We'd start out with an investigation. So two elders would be assigned to the investigation. They'd go out and they'd question everybody who was talked about, you know, and say, 
Or are you aware of this? Did this happen? No, does this kind of this elaborate thing? Would this happen to you know someone who was just guilty of, of smoking? Or oh yeah, really? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. If uh, you know, if someone, if let's say you guys are both witnesses, and Jeremy, you see Justin smoke a cigarette, <sighs> <laughs> your your responsibility at that point is to go to your elders or one of them and say, hey. I saw Justin smoke a cigarette. Then you're absolved. You're done. And that's that's really... Oh, good. I'm clean. Right. <laughs> you mean, so, so the implication is if, if I don't, if I see him smoking a cigarette and I don't report it, you're then, then my, morally, my moral slate is not clean anymore either. Right. Right. And the, the concept is wow. if you... If you um, witness a sin, then you're responsible for the same sin. Wow, unless... that sounds horrifying. <laughs> that's a nice check. That's that's a yeah. great way to get people yeah. to spy on each other and oh yeah, and, and that's report. and that's driven home fairly regularly. I mean, the, that you know, that's that's revisited again and again, and you know. So is this like is this culture just? It sounds like it would be extremely paranoid. Like it is. Yeah, oh. people people are pretty paranoid. I mean, like. You know, there's there's groups of people that do things that they're not supposed to do, mm-hmm. and it's a ver- those are very tight knit groups. You know, and everybody's paranoid that somebody's going to give in and go oh, spill the beans. Geez. And then, of course, you know, if you do get caught for something, you know, so if someone if someone does get caught, then they go through that process, the investigation. If the investigation determines it's likely that this happened, or they know that this then happened, all those other guys are. Are in trouble as well. Yeah, or if you did something unrelated, like let's say you know you were running around with a group of five guys who all got into a little bit of trouble, nothing crazy. Maybe you guys got drunk, right? Because that's also horrible. Um, you guys all get drunk together, right? But then you go out and you do something else. So you you go out and you smoke a cigarette on your own. So one person does that. Well, then that comes to a judicial committee. The judicial committee has to determine whether or not you're repentant. And this is a closed-door session, three elders questioning, you know, going through the details. And sometimes they get into the very, very, very detailed, which yeah. is crazy. But so they determine that, you know, you are guilty. You were smoking. Um, however, you know, we're not going to kick you out. We're not going to disfellowship you. We'll reprove you instead. So if enough people about it know about it, then they'll go on the stage and they'll announce that you've been reproved. But meanwhile, in the meeting, they give you an opportunity to clear your slate and say, hey. And name names? Yeah, kind wow. of. So, I mean, they're not, and they're not going to push you to name names, but just say, look, you know, now's your chance to really, if you have anything else that, you know, you really feel bad oh, about. Oh, right. Now's the time to come clean and let's just, you know, clean up your whole thing. And then you have a clean conscience. You can move forward from there. Mm-hmm. But, of course, if in that process you do name other people, then that opens up. Those investigations too, yeah. and then they start pursuing those and seeing where that leads. So we we see. So the consequences for this are um, being reproved, which I imagine is. It sounds like some sort of public confession. Um, it depends. Um, there's there's basically four ways a judicial committee can end up. So the the lightest, of course, is that they determine that there was no wrongdoing at all. And then you're good. Everything's fine. You know, or they determine that you did some things that weren't necessarily great, but they're just going to kind of say, hey, look, don't do this anymore and go about your business. That doesn't happen usually. Usually if it makes it to a judicial committee, they already determined you did something. 
So then um, you have private reproof, which happens basically where they say, like, you know, nobody knows about this except for us. And we're going to read some scriptures to you so that you know what you did was wrong and bad. We're not going to announce anything. However, if you have any any privileges, like, you know, if you're a pioneer or if you're carrying the mics up and down, you know, so people can talk in the microphone, all those things are taken away from you. But nothing publicly is stated. Um, if they feel like enough people know about it or if they feel that other people should know about it for whatever reason, whether it's safety or whatever, then you'd be publicly reproved. And if you're publicly reproved, then about a week after they have the meeting, one of the elders will go up on a stage during the announcements, basically on a usually on a Thursday night, and say so and so has been publicly reproved. So then they announce that to the congregation, and then of course the worst is being disfellowshipped, where they say, okay, you know we don't feel that you're repentant of whatever you did, so you don't feel bad enough, and we don't think that you know, you're done doing this or whatever. So then you basically have a week. You can appeal that. But the appeal process, of course, goes to just another three elders. You know, and of course, all the elders in the town know each other. Yeah. So you can appeal it. It goes to the other three elders. The other three elders then determine whether or not you were repentant at the time. So, and of course, I mean... It's not exactly. <laughs> That's very subjective. Right. Now, right. I imagine sure. they have a strict criteria that they follow every time. They do have a, a criteria, <laughs> but I mean, it's. But the criteria. They weigh your heart against a feather. Right. <laughs> right. The problem is if you know the criteria. Yeah. They know if you know the criteria going in, you know exactly what to give them. Right. And so that's why, you know, a lot of times you have like elders' kids who go in and get in just as much trouble as anybody else. They walk up being reproved right. because, mm-hmm. you know, their dad says, hey, look, you know, tell them you prayed about it because they're not supposed to be prompted. You know, no one's supposed to say, well, did you pray about it? Right. It's just supposed to say, what have you done to repair your relationship with Jehovah? So, you know, the kid goes in and he says, well, you know, I poured my heart out. I prayed about it, you know, and I say, oh, well, he's probably repentant then. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, so they go through the appeals process. If the appeals process doesn't find anything different, it usually doesn't, then the next, the following, basically seven days later, then it's announced from the stage, you know, so-and-so is no longer one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And so anyone hearing that announcement knows that they've been disfellowshipped. They don't talk about the reason or anything like that. And then from that point forward, you're not allowed to speak to them. Wow. So the rank and file, so the, you know, the average witness, no contact, basically. Um, There's some exceptions if it's a family member living in your own house, if it's a family member and you have specific business to attend to, um, and that, and that continually. Like a legal contract or something like that. Right. And that continually is revisited to say, you know, people are being too liberal with this, you know, family business thing. We need to cut that down. And then they stay disfellowshipped until they write a letter in saying, you know, I'm so repentant. I feel terrible about this whole thing. They've been going to meetings every week. They have their watchtower all highlighted and underlined and scriptures written in. And people keep an eye out, you know, watch that stuff. You write the letter. If the letter is moving enough, then they'll let you be reinstated. So you you said, uh, you know, uh, you could say that you go to meetings every week. So there are meetings for people that are... That have been disfellowshipped. Disfellowshipped people that, can that are is kind of like a 
a little support group? No, they can. These fellowship people can go to meetings, can go to regular meetings with everybody okay. else. Oh, okay. And witnesses basically have, you know, on Sunday they have a public talk and watchtower study. And then they're supposed to have one day, one night a week, they're supposed to have a family study. Mm-hmm. And then usually on a Tuesday or Thursday they have the, um, what is it? It's been a little while. Board game night? Yeah. <laughs> that would have been nice. They have... Uh, Mormon family game night. <laughs> <laughs> they have uh, a congregation book study. And then they have the what's called the Theocratic Ministry School, which is kind of like a speech class, basically. Jesus Christ, Jeez. how many days do you guys have to go to church? <laughs> well, it used to be a lot more. <laughs> they did away with one. It used to be used to be Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. They did away with Tuesday, and they made that family study. And they rolled that into Thursday, which became uh, Theocratic Ministry School, and then the Congregation Book Study, and then uh, the service meeting. So a disfellowship person. Service meeting is just open to everyone. Is that the case? All 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 of those are. Okay. So anybody can go to any of those public meetings. So you know if you if like if someone who is who had chosen to leave showed up at something like that, they'd let you go for a little while. If somebody felt like you weren't there to help them out or you weren't there to come back, then you'd be asked to leave, and they'd say, you know, your public invitation has been revoked. But while you're there, mm. no one's interacting with you. No one's or, talking to you. No. Yeah. So I mean, you're you're, you're shunned. It's you're very still awkward. in the community, yeah. community, <laughs> you're, community, but you're shunned. Right. You're hard pressed to get someone to look you in the eyes. I mean, you walk in and people don't look at you. They don't know what to do. Jeez. And you look miserable, of course. Yeah. Which is what everybody's everyone's been told you're going to be. So yeah. you know, if you're kicked out, you're just your life is horrible. So. And I'm sure you know it's it's completely humiliating. Well, yeah. Oh yeah. Because everybody knows what they did. Right. You know, I mean, the elders do a decent job, actually, of not spilling, you know, the beans and all, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But nobody, you know. If I, it's, it gets out there somehow. It gets out, right. So everybody knows what you did. And nobody talks to you. And, yeah, you're not, you know, you're treated like the lowest of the low. Hmm. So you were an elder. So I'm guessing you were on the prosecutorial side of of this process. Yeah. You probably went through a few of these disfellowships. I went I went through a few, not very many. Enough enough times I guess to observe how it worked and to see that it wasn't really helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the cases that, that personally I was a part of handling, we really didn't have much say as individuals, you know. So we're there, there's three of us we listen to everything. You know, we've got a pretty good idea what this person's going through. There were a couple times that did get very uncomfortable um, where other people on that group of three people were asking, you know, very specific, fairly explicit questions about, you know, sexual contact, you know, of these people who are already in tears and they're looking for details, you know. Right. And they're counseled. They're told, you know, you know, you don't need unnecessary details, but... They justify needing unnecessary Human details. nature is what it is, right. and that sort of thing right. is going to happen. Right. And so we went through the process, and we listened to the, what they had to say. And then, of course, you ask the person to leave, and then you cover a couple things. You talk about them. Um, you talk about the person. You talk about whether or not they followed you know, this list of things that shows that they're repentant. And then normally you invite the person to come back in, and you tell them, you know, you're disfellowshipped or you're not. Well, what was interesting was... 
um, in the in the cases that I sat on at least, and I know this this isn't necessarily the norm, but in the cases that I sat on, um, every single one of them we couldn't make that call. Like as the three of us, we couldn't make that judgment call. So we had to call New York, you know, because we just felt like it was a little too much for us to, you know, it was on the line enough. So in those cases, we called New York or the representation, you know, like the circuit overseer who's considered to be representative of New York. So we'd call them and then they'd tell us what they thought. And in one case, you know, we even at, at times we had to call the legal department to say, hey, you know, how do we handle this? So. But in those, but in all of those cases, I mean, the end result was, well, you know, you guys, have, after what you've told us, you either have to, you know, disfellowship this person, or we're going to have to take a look at your own qualifications. Wow! Oh, wow! So, so there we are sitting, you know, listening to these people, and I mean, they felt bad about what they did. <laughs> you know, they definitely felt bad. Um, you know, and and just detailed circumstances that would make people act, you know, in ways that. Or possibly even not healthy, but you could certainly, if you had a little bit of empathy, you could see how they got in that position. Mm-hmm. And, you know, pouring their heart out to us. And then in the end, these other people who didn't hear this whole thing came back and said, well, you guys have to do this. And so yeah. that was very disheartening, you know, because it was like, look, I was there, man. I know this person is repentant. I mean, how much more, what else could they be doing right. to show how sorry they are that they did this? You know, and then you, this guy who wasn't, who didn't hear any of this, you know, you're going to say, well, that's, you do what you got to do. Well, what a great mechanism for preventing humanity coming in and, <laughs> right. and making things better is that you yourself could be on the line if you're not. Right, right. If you're not taking stern enough action. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, if you, if you would feel as though you didn't do your job right, like, oh, Obviously, that was the right answer, and, and you know, I'm I'm not doing my job right by recognizing right. that. Right, right. How, how intimidated were you as an elder? I, I mean, I, I've heard that people take these uh, these field reports of how often you're going out and mm-hmm. evangelizing, um, and that if you're under a certain amount of hours, I've heard before that they'll sometimes they'll send you a letter uh, or they'll. If if you're an elder, I mean, it's it's unlikely that you'd get a letter directly, you know, sent to you. Um, you'd have a meeting with the circuit overseer, or the rest of the elders would sit you down and say, "Hey, look, you know, you're not getting any time in here." Mm-hmm. Um, but but I mean, it is a it is kind of an old boys club, you know, where it, you look out for each other. Mm-hmm. And so if if one guy's having some some issues, you know, turning in things, you know, that that are subpar. Then the other guys are going to say, "Hey, man, you know this. You had to have been doing something. So let's just count this and add this in, you know, and stuff mm-hmm. like that." Well, so eventually, doubts started creeping into your mind. What, what was what were some of the first events or experiences that that prompted you to start questioning the system? Um, it was kind of a combination of different things at once, actually. Um, you know, when I became an elder, you know, one of the first things that happen happens is the other elders kind of pull you aside and say, all right, now that you're an elder, you can be privy to this information, so let me tell you what's going on in our congregation. I was very active in our congregation, you know, working in a, in a lot of different departments and, and covering a lot of things, so I felt like I had a pretty good idea of what was going on anyways. And then they tell me this list of things, and I'm just like... Are you are you kidding me? <laughs> You're learning everyone's darkest secret, right? And they were some of them were 
horrible, you know. Um, uh, we had people, you know, we had we had uh, people who were in abusive relationships, you know, whether it was a husband and wife or some sometimes children, you know, who or not necessarily children at the time who were being abused, but you know, we had people who had abused children before. Um, we had there was there was some one situation where someone had been accused of rape, you know, in the congregation of someone else in the congregation. Hmm. And, you know, you'd see them both there and you'd think, this is weird. Um, You know, and so, yes, other people had been stealing some stuff. Um, You know, just just this huge laundry list of things, you know, they were involved in, either looking into right now or they knew of. Um, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of spousal abuse, you know, going on that was being dealt with one way or another. Um, and so that was a huge eye opener because I thought that I knew these people and I was pretty convinced at the time that they were, you know, the epitome of moral rightness. You know, I mean, these people were good people. And then all of a sudden I get this laundry list of, well, this guy did this and this, this woman did this. And I thought, well, this decreases the ratio of really good decent people to really rotten people <laughs> this changes that a lot so that was a big deal and then around the same time i actually had been working on a talk which covered um one of the one of the kind of central doctrines of the jehovah's witnesses which talks about the year 1914 mm-hmm. so and this is the year that jesus came back Invisibly, spiritually, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And I had no idea that he, that you know, that Russell had been saying, you know, this is Armageddon before that. Um, so the talk specifically was about um, the year six or seven BCE, which is when the witnesses believed Jerusalem fell. Okay, right. And so that's when Babylon I, comes in and conquers, destroys the temple. Right. And so then, based on the year six or seven BCE, you do this whole. Um, equation based on Daniel's prophecy to come up with the year 1914. So you end up at 1914. Then 1914 is basically, you know, within like, I think, two and a half years of that, um, based on another prophecy in Revelation about the two witnesses, that's when God chooses the witnesses to be his chosen organization. Hmm. So that's a cornerstone uh, because that's where they get the authority Mm -hmm. to make these rules. Without that authority... You know, every religious organization has to have some claim to authority. You right. know, Catholics have Peter and the Pope, and, you know, it stems from there. So the witnesses have the six or seven. Prophecy leads to 1914, 1914 plus two and a half, three years. 1918, God chooses them. So if you do away with 1914, you have a problem. Well, the big problem comes in with your starting point of 607. Mm-hmm. Jerusalem didn't fall in 607. <laughs> Jerusalem fell in 587. I'd never heard that in my life. You know, so I'm working on writing this talk, talking about here's how we arrive at this date. Here's how we know that Jehovah's Witnesses have the truth and how God chose them. And so then I just happened to stumble upon, you know, an article that I was reading about the fall of Jerusalem, you know, in, a, in actually a non-witness, um, you know, uh, publication. And Well, that was your first mistake, reading a non-witness publication. What are you doing? We got so much. I mean, like, to actually read anything other than what we got. I mean, you know, you were guilted into just reading witness material as much as possible. Um, So I read that, and I thought, well, those idiots, you know, they don't know when Jerusalem fell. They got the year wrong. 
And I think it was like on Wikipedia. So I thought, Wikipedia, you know, they don't know anything. <laughs> so then I'd take that and I think, well, let me just double check. So then I check everything, you know, the Israeli National Archives, the, you know, the, the BBC and, and everything else. I'm trying to find some reference to Jerusalem falling in 607 and there's nothing. And it turns out there's a tremendous amount of evidence that points to it falling in 587. I thought, well, this is a big problem because, I mean, this does away with the whole thing. If you move forward 20 or 30 years, in 1914, you move 20 or 30, what do you end up at, 1934, 1944, 1954? You know, nothing really yeah. meaningful happened those years. So that was a huge thing. Um, and then that's when I started to really look into quotations and references and say, okay, well, they say this. Let me look and see what, you know, if if that's actually what they said. And we had a book, you know, Evolution, How Did It Get Here? Or, I mean, Creation, How Did it, What was it? Life, How Did It Get Here? By Evolution or By Creation. I start going through this book, and, of course, that one had a bunch of sources. I look up the sources, and, the, and it was as dishonest of mm-hmm. publishing as you could possibly get. And I thought, okay, you know, I don't care who you are. If you do this, this is not honest. If this is God's group of people, why would he require that they do things that are dishonest? That doesn't make sense. And then seeing everything locally that was going on was crazy. But I thought that maybe that was just a microcosm. You know, maybe it happens to be that where we are, you know, things are are bad. But elsewhere, I'm sure the average is the opposite. Well, because of the time I'd spent at Bethel, I had friends who were all over the country, and some were even outside the country across the world. Mm-hmm. So I started asking, you know, I was an elder, so a lot of them also were elders because they had been at Bethel too. And so I started kind of just casually talking about, yeah, well, you know, we have some crazy stuff going on around here. What are things like where you are? And they'd tell me the same stories. You know, of, hmm. oh, yeah, you know, we've got we've got three child, you know, we've got three convicted uh, child molesters in our hall that we have to watch out for. Um, we're dealing with, this is crazy, we've got two, you know, we've got, you know, this guy's running around with this, with this guy's wife, and they're doing crazy things, but we can't prove it. You know, all these things, and I'm thinking, gee, you know, I know, I know worldly people, you know, who are, which is what witnesses refer to non-witnesses as. You know, and I'm thinking, gee, you know, of the people that I know that are not witnesses, it kind of seems like they're at least as moral, if not more, <laughs> right. than this group of people. <laughs> and then I started talking to my friends and not, not bringing it up directly because that would have been a huge mistake, but, you know, talking to them and saying, hey, what are things like? And they came back with the same report. Hmm. Uh, this isn't just a localized thing. This is part of this group of people. This is not good. Yeah. So... It's dawning on you now, <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? Um, you know, at this point, you're, you're, you're married, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Your wife's a witness. Yep. Yep. Whole, whole, most of my direct immediate family. Um, yeah, so that was, that was a tough time. I didn't know what to do. Actually. Is, this, is this your livelihood? Or are, you, uh, are you getting paid for being an elder? No, I didn't okay. get paid for <laughs> Witnesses do not get paid for being witnesses okay. in any respect. You sign a vow of poverty. <laughs> uh, when you go to Bethel, a vow of poverty, you get $115 a month. Uh-huh. Um, and then you get food and lodging. So, yeah, nothing is ever paid. Um, but no, I, ha- I had a job. Fortunately, it was unrelated. Um, you know, but yeah, my family 
was all in at the time, um, you know, explaining to them still is kind of an issue, actually. Um, I'd love to just sit down and say, look, you know, I'm the same guy that I always was. Um, I, my principles haven't really changed. I mean, for the most part, you know, I've made some adjustments based on, you know, the idea of, of humanism and, and actually applying humanistic principles have changed my viewpoint on some things. But I'm not going to go leave my wife or yeah. go out and just start doing all these crazy things, you know. I'd love to have that conversation. I still actually can't because as soon as you say, look, I left by choice, then you open up the whole apostasy word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it, it apostasy? Apostasy is handled differently? Apostasy is a disfellowshipable offense, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's really painted as like the ugl- ugliest one of them all. So right. you're told to not, you know, you're referred to as of everything you can think of a virus. Um, you know, you should hate apostates. You should hate what they're doing. You should avoid any of their, anything that they've ever written, you know, anything that, you know, never interact with them, you know, for any reason. So, so just, you know, quarantine your, your belief right. system is from any kind of... right. And people that know that you know, if people, if you were, if you were seen talking to someone who left by choice, or who openly spoke out against witnesses, then if someone witnessed that, you'd be in an elders meeting, and you know, it would start out with some counsel, but then if you were seen again, then you'd be disfellowshipped too at some point. You know, after talking to you a bunch of times, they'd say, "All right, you're out too." So yeah, apostasy is like kind of the worst thing that you can get kicked out for. And basically, it's applied to anyone who leaves just by choice without getting kicked out. They didn't commit some sin, you know, anything like that. So you're faced with this choice. You either you either follow what your reason is telling you right. and leave. But if you do that, you risk losing your family, your loved ones. You're, I'm guessing, did your wife share the same doubts at that time? Um, she, she didn't Im- immediately, but, uh, you know, I mean... We fortunately we have a really good relationship where we communicate really openly, and you know, and I told her the reasons that I couldn't support it, and uh, and then let her look into it for herself. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I'm sure I was more pushy than I should have been, but uh, <laughs> I'm kind of stubborn. <laughs> um, but I I really tried to just say, look, you know, check these claims. These are the these are the claims that they're making. Can you back them up? And here's some things that I've found. Just check them, and. Even up to that point in time, like I had never, I had never actually looked at apostate literature, so I'd never looked at anything that was anti-witness up to that point. Everything, the conclusions I came to were from reading old witness literature, reading new witness literature, and checking the sources, and then reading just you know reading about history or about archaeology, you know even about biology at that point. But I still avoided you know this apostate stuff, mm-hmm. so I was able to say, look, you can read this. Like, this is not about witnesses at all. And one of the one of the books that I read that was hugely helpful um, was a book by Stephen Hassan, which is combating cult mind control, mm-hmm. um, which is not about Jehovah's Witnesses in any way, shape, or form. The guy didn't know who they were. You know, he didn't know anything about them when he wrote the book. He had an experience in the Moonies, mm-hmm. and he wrote about that. Then he went on to you know to become a doctor and and start to help people you know deprogram and things like that. So he wrote this experience about the Moonies. He talked about the Hare Krishnas. He talked about what is it, the the Church of God? I, I don't recall. One uh, another another small cult, basically. He wrote about all this stuff. 
never mentioned witnesses at all. But you go through this, and I, you know, I'm sitting there with a highlighter because I got to these parts that I was just like, crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There literally was a moment that it was just like, this lines oh up my god. Damn. Yeah, and that book, and that book was hugely helpful too because it was like, look, here's how to approach people, here's how to talk to people moving forward. So, right. you know, so I was able to to share that with with my wife, and and then you know some other people too, and. And so far, fortunately, you know, I still have a good family that, you know, sticks around. They, 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 we may not be able to talk about some things, but... Have you officially been disfellowshipped from your old congregation? I have not. Whoa, really? <laughs> How'd really? you get out of that one? <laughs> um, well, mainly, I, I just don't push it, you know. Um, I don't... surely noticed you haven't been around. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've tried to track me down. Um, you know, elders from the hall that I was from have, have come to my door. Um, I've had people pop onto Facebook. Well, I don't know if they're elders or if they're, you know, just publishers or, or what. Um, they've tried to friend me on Facebook, you know, under different pseudonyms <laughs> even so that they can see what I'm doing through there because all that, what they, what they would love to see more than anything else is they'd love to see that I've been committing some horrible sin and then everything that they believe is proven true because yeah, <laughs> they really want me to have left for selfish reasons. Yeah, and if they can prove that, then it just says, "Look, you know this this guy gave in. You know he gave into these, these these sinful activities. It's not that an intelligent person could actually come to the conclusion this wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so they try to do that. Um, and then you know for the most part, I just try to not you know just publicly in mass media with the opposite of what I'm doing now. Say things. <laughs> Just speak openly about the well, the religion, you know. We we thank you and our listeners, I think, thank you for having the courage to actually share this. And I know I because I know you personally, I know this is not an easy thing for you to be doing right now. But I think it's I think that's actually part of the step of healing yeah. of all this is actually coming out. Yeah, no, I think so too. I think it's really cathartic and, and really good for me, so I appreciate it. Well, we know from emails that we get that we have uh, we have family members of witnesses. You've been through this. Do you have advice? I guess a couple of different things. It really depends on the point that the person is at. So, you know, if the person is comfortable consulting anything that's outside of witness materials, um, there's a few websites that are that are really helpful. Um, one is uh, jehovahswitnessrecovery.com. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just a forum, you know, where people can go. A lot of people go there, and, and it's a really, it's a, I have nothing to do with it, you know. I mean, I'm on there, but, uh, you know, it's really just a forum where, where where the focus is healing and trying to get through what you need to get through. Mm-hmm. So really, really solid community there, and people have helped each other out. People have gone and stayed at each other's places. I mean, it's been really helpful to me, and I've actually gotten to know some people all across the world, you know, who have had the same experience. And we've got to be decent friends, you know, outside of, of that form, which is good. Signing on to something like that for a witness is a huge step. So, you know, most of them aren't going to be ready to go and do that. Um, if they are, that's really helpful. If they're not, um, you know, if if someone could, if someone would be willing to read that book, that Stephen Hassan book, that would be a huge step too. Mm-hmm. Um, the nice thing about that is that it's not an apostate book at all. Um, it's just a good book about this guy's experience in a group unrelated to the witnesses. Right. And you can learn a tremendous amount about these techniques that are put in place in all these different groups. Yeah. And 
if you happen to notice that they're very similar to the techniques that Jehovah's Witnesses use, well, you figure that out on your own. You know, so that's a huge thing. I was thinking of our cults episode, just cutting in, and the Scientology, <laughs> and I was thinking, like, I was hitting a checklist of mm-hmm. similar things. <laughs> there does some to, seem to be a lot of commonalities with, with different groups like this. But oh, there is. Oh, there on. is. Um, so that would be good. And then apart from that, you know, um, you know, if someone has doubts, if they speak up about them, then they're going to be they're going to be hunted down. I mean, um, you know, so if someone goes to the elders and says, hey, I have doubts about these things, mm-hmm. if they bring up 607 BCE, if they bring up um, there's a weird thing where the Jehovah's Witnesses who have published article upon article about, of hatred of the United Nations um, and then it turns out they actually joined the United Nations as a, as a, uh, <laughs> the Department of Public Information. Um, they joined as an NGO, you know, as a non-governmental organization. They have a representative there. <laughs> well, great. but, I mean, to join as an NGO, you have to actually sign right. your approval, you know, toward their charter. There's significant paperwork. Too. Right, right. <laughs> and so they were actually a member for about 10 years. Um, so, you know, if, if a person finds out about that, they find out about 607, they find out about some of the quote mining, you know, and things like that. If they talk about that to somebody, they'll be turned into the elders. So, hmm. you know, so just be careful what doubts you voice. Because if you if you voice them to someone who's in charge, you know, any of the elders or anything like that, or someone who's going to turn you in, it may get you to the point that you're not ready to be it yet. So, you know, take your time, learn about this stuff. If you need support, go to someplace like, you know, JehovahsWitnessRecovery.com, which is very helpful. Um, you know, there's all kinds of social media sites out there where you can find actually pretty yeah. supportive groups. Um, you know, jump on there and, and listen to other people's experiences. There's a few ways to get out. You know, one, of course, is cutting all ties and disassociating yourself, which is you're treated basically just like you're disfellowshipped. Um, and that's kind of the extreme, like, I don't agree with you guys. You write a letter, you send it in kind of like uh, Mormons trying to get out. They have, I think mm-hmm. it's a more, it's a more involved process for Mormons. Um, but for witnesses, you know, if they, if they write that letter and sign it, they're out. So that's the quick way you can be disfellowshipped, of course, for, you know, any sort of thing. And that's a quick way too. But there's a pretty popular... Just walk right in and start smoking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or you if you want to do it with style, go on and during, line up a Marley. During crap right. night. <laughs> right. During crap night. But a, a, a ton of people choose the more subtle route, which is just, it's much more drawn out. They quit going door to door for a while. Right. And then they stop showing up at meetings for a while. And then they just kind of make friends outside of that group, and then they disappear at some point. Now, that creates some awkward relationship issues, mm-hmm. but it's a pretty effective means of getting out. And the other thing... But nobody signs a report that says, hey, your family can't talk to you or anything. Right. So you right. could see why the appeal would be there. To right, right. And the other... Forgotten. Th- yeah. A lot of that probably is just, you know, them figuring out for themselves. and Like, they're not ready to, you know, so they're right. slowly going through this right. process. Right, right. Away yeah, so that's a good way to do it. And the other thing, the other thing that I would suggest is, you know, create a social, a social circle outside of the witnesses. Right. Because ninety nine point nine percent of witnesses don't know anybody outside of that group. Oh, 
apart from work relationships. And even work relationships you're not supposed to cultivate. So you might go to lunch with them, but you're not going to hang out with them on the weekend. So so they actually uh, they discourage relationships out. Is that oh what you're yeah, saying? yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Um, unless it's unless it's for the purpose of bringing them in. Okay. You know, then you can do some things, and that's kind of you know like Hassan gets into that with the love bombing thing. You know where oh you know as soon as someone shows up that's new, then everybody goes and meets him, invites him to do things, and all this stuff. Right. But it's always going to be more witnesses than non-witnesses. So if a person is thinking about looking into this stuff, even if they're just at that point, get to know some people who aren't witnesses. And you'll find out that they're not these horrible people. Mm. You know, they're pretty ethical, pretty moral, at least at least to the same level that witnesses are. When you see that, then you're going to have to do two things. One, you're going to rid yourself of that uh, preconceived idea that non-witnesses are evil. Right. And that's a pretty driven in point. And then, two, you're going to have people to fall back on. Because if something goes wrong in that process, like if you're trying to fade out, mm -hmm. then you're going to need a support group. So, you know, cultivate those friendships, cultivate those relationships. You'll find out that people are actually pretty decent. Right. You know, and then you've got people that are going to support you and help you out. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for joining us today. And, uh, and good luck as things go on. Thank you. Appreciate being here. It's been great. So let's wrap up here with some props, and let's start off with a Jehovah's Witness-related story, appropriately enough, right? Yep, this comes from Religion News Blog. Irish High Court Grants Transfusion Order for Jehovah's Witness Baby. Uh, this is at the Coombe Hospital in Dublin, which I know, already know, I got the name of that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> It's, <laughs> it's those, those Celtic pronunciations that I have just given up on. So um, yeah. at least it's not Welsh. Um, that's even trickier. But anyway. There, there was a, uh, a baby who was born in this hospital, born prematurely. Mm -hmm. Parents refused to agree to a blood transfusion. Because it's against their yeah. beliefs. According to the Irish Independent, quote, doctors said the baby was at risk of infection and a range of complications and a blood fusion could be required. But because her condition could deteriorate rapidly, a court order was needed in advance to allow the hospital to administer the life-saving treatment. Mm -hmm. The parents were against it, but uh, Justice Patrick McCarthy granted the order allowing the hospital to give necessary treatment to the baby. Uh, and then later, the parents can <laughs> can uh, issue their grievances and complaints. Right. So After the baby's life has been saved. The, yeah, protect yeah. the yeah. child's life first. And right. then if the government behaved badly, we'll deal with this later. Yes. <laughs> but meanwhile, a child is saved. Yes. This is a good story. And, and this is a this is not actually anything new for the Irish High Court or, or even this particular hospital. This hospital has won a number of different court orders regarding blood transfusions for Jehovah's Witnesses are, children. Are there a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses in Ireland? They're but, a global movement. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Watchtower, I've, I forgot the statistic already, but it was mm. in the interview, um, hundreds of languages, the yeah, Watchtower right, magazine. Right. 
I think we've all had them on our doorsteps at some point. (laughs) (laughs) So you know how active they are in evangelism. Yes, yes. Uh, But we talked briefly in the interview about why they forbid blood transfusions. Mm -hmm. And it's because of that passage in Acts where after the first Jerusalem council, uh, Paul is bringing up this question, well, do the do the Gentiles have to actually follow the law, the Jewish law? Mm-hmm. And uh, after quite a bit of debate, the disciples come to the conclusion, well, okay, no, they don't, but there's a few things we don't want them doing. Mm-hmm. And one is eating meat that contains blood. Right. But because it says abstain from blood, they, they think that... They take that to be blood transfusions. Right, right. Wow. Which I think there's a pretty. I don't think regardless, Paul was really up on blood transfusion. <laughs> regardless of your theology, there's a. I, I think there should be a, a non-controversial hermeneutic that could be applied uh, yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is 50 CE. Right. They're not talking about blood transfusions. No, no. <laughs> well, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses not the most uh, radical thinkers when it comes to biblical interpretation. So, uh, you know. Yes. Well. We'll move on to another props. Yeah. This one's very exciting. This one. I think so, too. um, You know, I mean, The Life of a Child, wonderful story. This is the rights of women making advancements in, shockingly enough, Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saudi Arabia and advancements in women's rights are not two phrases that go together in your mind. Right, right. Yeah, we want to be really careful who we're giving the props to. Yes, King Abdullah, right? <laughs> no. Once again, he makes another uh, smart – no, no, no. Uh, certainly not um, his behalf. You could argue that King Abdullah has been – uh, has made some rulings lately that have been more favorable to women's rights. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, he started the first fully integrated – King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. That right. was a co-ed school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is – that. I mean – That's important. That is important. That's a significant step. He appointed the first female deputy minister of women's education. Not a so, bad step. So was it all men um, presiding <laughs> over women's education until then? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So I'm guessing. Small steps. <laughs> baby small steps. Small steps. Yes. Uh, and recently has granted the right to vote and run for local elections yes. in 2000 that they will start in 2015. Right. The thing is, um, given all the other violations of human rights, yeah. <laughs> I'm not thinking King Abdullah himself is this progressive individual no. who's trying to soldier on for women's rights. Exactly. It's more that, uh, that the... The feminist activists within mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia have consistently applied pressure to yeah. this regime in that now watching the developments of right. the Arab Spring, these guys are legitimately worried that they might lose their power yes. and that they're willing to start making some of these concessions. There, there is change in the wind and they are are saying, okay – And we mentioned this before on the show too, but it's one thing to be a feminist activist in the United States, even pre-women's suffrage. It was it was a big deal. Can you imagine doing it in Saudi Arabia? No, I mean you're taking your life in your hands. The amount of courage this must take. These are these are amazing women and and men as well Mm -hmm. who have been fighting for uh, women's suffrage here. 
My favorite part of this, though, is their response to it. They don't go, oh, yes, thank you, King Abdullah. This is exactly what we wanted. Literally, their response was, why not tomorrow? Right. Why 2015? Yeah, why 2015? We give us our rights now. And and also, I think an interesting aspect to this story is the role that uh, social media, again, is playing in yes. this, in the ability to uh, bring people together. We didn't actually talk about it on the podcast, but it was a big deal last June in Saudi Arabia. Mm. There was a massive protest across the entire nation yes. of women deciding that they were going to drive. Yes. <laughs> Which might sound, you know, <laughs> another one of those radical, things we take but, for granted. Yeah, absolutely. But um, there's not actually a law in the books that says that Saudi women can't drive. It's just where they issue the driver's licenses, nobody will issue them to women. Ah, so it, it, it's, and it's so not it's, part of the law. It's just part of the practice. Well, as some uh, Islamic scholars are pointing out that they're, part of the reason why they're doing this is there, there, might, be, there might not be a basis in Islamic law to, Cause, to again, restrict – Muhammad didn't really talk about driving. Exactly. Yeah. There's not a whole lot in the Hadith about your pickup truck. Yeah. So, pointing out the injustice of this, yes. women were saying, hey, if there's no law, we're going to drive. We're going to do it. <laughs> and uh, then filmed themselves a lot of times and posted mm-hmm. these on, on YouTube. Right. <laughs> there's a great picture in National Geographic about it. It's one of my favorites to come out this year, but it's a... It's a woman. Um, she's not even wearing a headscarf or oh. anything, and earrings, makeup, and the whole thing. And she's driving, and there's uh, the taxi cab next to her has a woman in a burqa pressed up against the window. I have not seen as this. if I mean you can't even see her eyes, but you can yeah. tell she's glaring. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, and it's a really, really great image. It, it's it really is. Um, an exciting time with the Arab Spring and of course you know um, there's a lot of unanswered questions there too but we are seeing some real steps and social media tends to be a huge part of this I mean look at Egypt that was a protest arranged on Facebook when I was in college I had a, a professor who was particularly interested in activism going on within mm-hmm. Iran. And we read a lot of um, these student movements within Iran mm-hmm. and, and this kind of underground. You know, people people don't want to be buried under, under burqas. People right. do not want to be kept away from smoking and drinking mm-hmm. and listening to music. And people will it, create their own their own uh, subcultures um, where they can enjoy just the pleasures of life we take for granted in a theocracy. These articles were often commenting on how the raw material there for a massive uprising, a pro-democracy uprising was there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they're they're meeting behind closed doors. How do they network? How do they... uh... This is even before MySpace. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. uh, This was before MySpace. Uh, and so it's it's amazing now, years later, to see this this uh, this all bubbling up. The technology's the there, and now it, it is happening. So you know, uh, congratulations to uh, the um, women's suffrage movement in Saudi Arabia, 
and keep fighting. Again. Yeah, and don't take their word for it either. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, in, in, in 2015, there a lot can happen between now and yeah. then. So the question needs to be, why not today? All right. So that's going to do it for us this week. Um, you can um, send us your questions, comments, challenges, and so forth to doubtcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at slash doubtcast. Head over to our website. You can go to doubtcast.org, which will redirect you to freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. And we'll be back soon with another Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 